Well, we're going to read together from uh, Mark's Gospel. Um, for those of you that haven't been with us or might not uh, remember, we're working our way through the Gospel of Mark. And we're doing it uh, for a couple of reasons. One is because at the beginning of the year, we just sort of kind of made a decision. We wanted to spend a year with Jesus, which is no bad thing. And, um, and the reason we keep going back to the Gospels is because these are our primary source documents. These are our primary ways of understanding who Jesus is and what he might want of us. And when we read together, what we're trying to do is two things always. We're trying to ask ourselves, what on earth was Jesus doing at the time? And then we're asking ourselves, and what does that mean for us today? And we'll do that again this morning. And there's some things that are much more obvious than others. And I think this morning there's kind of is one of those episodes in the life of Jesus where we have to listen really carefully and keenly because it's easy to either jump to the wrong conclusion or it's just easy to think, I've got no idea why that might be of any relevance at all to me. So I'm going to read from uh, the first uh, verse of that chapter 11. If you've got a Bible or you can overlook someone's shoulder or you've... anyway. As they approached Jerusalem, and the them are Jesus and the 12 disciples. As, the, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why you're doing this, say, The Lord needs it. And we'll send it back here shortly. They went. They found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. And as they untied it, some people standing there said, What are you doing untying that colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them to. And the people let them go. And when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread their branches they'd cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those... Uh, I've lost my place. Well, um, those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. And he looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it wasn't the season for figs. And he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be a called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. And in the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots, and Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Jesus said, have faith in God. 
Truly I tell you, if you say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and don't doubt in your heart, but believe what you say will happen, it'll be done for you. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it'll be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them. So your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. We're going to concentrate on that passage up to um, where Jesus answered, uh, have faith in God. And next week in church, we'll look at the whole idea of prayer. Next week is the first Sunday, so we have two services. Um, We have a a first service at 9.30, which is a quieter service, and then we have the all-age service at 10.30. So what's going on here? Well, one thing to say before we... And, and, and at this point, I'm really wanting just to say what's going on in the passage. Let's, let's look at the passage relatively closely to find out what Jesus did, and then we can work out what it means. The first thing to say is, this is Jesus and his first real engagement with the temple, but the temple is going to become really important in the ongoing story now. Between 11 and through to the crucifixion, the temple is going to become the crucial clash point between Jesus and the Jewish authorities. In fact, the Jewish authorities will hand Jesus over to the Romans and say, this man needs to be crucified because he has said that he's going to destroy this temple. So in, the, in a sense, the temple wasn't kind of a, a, a sort of an incidental issue. It became absolutely central to the reason that the Jews said we can hand Jesus over. So when we, when we come to read through the next chapters, it will be in the context of the temple. It's going to be back and back and back and back. That's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is you've got a really odd little incident in the midst of this that Mark weaves in to what we have called the cleansing of the temple, where Jesus overturns those tables. And it's that little incident about a fig tree. He goes to the fig tree, and he enters. He he goes on the way to the temple. He finds a, a fig tree which is in leaf, and he goes up to it and he looks for figs, and there aren't any. And so Jesus, Mark tells us, curses the fig tree. Now that's odd, isn't it? What have we heard about Jesus up till now? He heals people, he raises the dead, he gets involved in the tragic cases of life, he sends us out into the tragic cases of life, and here he is, getting really angry at a tree. And you kind of want to ask the question. I think, if you don't ask the question, Jesus, what are you doing? You've not read close enough. Now, Mark is clever, and I've wanted to tell you Mark's clever, the way he writes his gospel all the way through. So Mark is wanting you to know that this isn't Jesus having a bad day. It's not Jesus just being irritable. There's something about this incident that will give you a clue as to hear what's going on with the temple. So what do we know about fig trees? Well, the first thing is that... um, Israel as a nation saw that the fig tree was like a symbol for their nation. Secondly, Mark told you, it's in full leaf. And third thing is, there's no figs. And uh, you might understand or imagine that people have written loads about this. Passages like this are brilliant for theologians because it gives them a job. 
And they just spend loads of time thinking about how it might and what's going on. And generally what people think is going on is this. Is, uh, oh, I was trying to, just bear with me a moment. If you want to be impressed, you can be any time you like. That's, that's fine, yeah. And uh, if you want to encourage me afterwards, anything about technology would be great. The, essentially what's going on is the tree is making a promise that it can't keep. The tree's in full bloom, but it's not producing the fruit. It's making a promise that it can't keep. This happens on the way into the temple. And again, bear with me because unless we know what's going on here, we're not going to get to grips with what's happening. This is a, a kind of a drawing of the temple at the time. And uh, it, this is very small writing, so you, can't, you won't see it everywhere. Um, the Wailing Wall is, is still there, um, the only part of the temple that's still in existence, really. Uh, the rest of it was destroyed. It was destroyed in, in 70 AD. And it was absolutely cataclysmic for the Jews of the day. So what you've got is you've got like places to get in. You know, you've got these gates and there's the golden gate, the one that um, pops up in, uh, in Acts. You've got these areas where the, the porticos or the sort of colonnades where people would walk, but it's also where some of the early Christians would meet in the book of Acts until... Um, in a sense, the split with Judaism happened. And here, you've got what they call the court of the Gentiles. This big area here, and the big area here. And uh, there's two things about that area. Is The first thing is that if you weren't a Jew, that's as far as you could go. You just weren't allowed any further. Because you weren't, essentially, you just weren't welcome. You weren't part of God's people. So you could get close to the temple, but you couldn't really get in. And secondly, it would be in this sort of area that the stands and the, the tables would be set up for people to come who would want to bring a sacrifice into the temple itself. There's the altar. So it was in this sort of area that those tables would have been set up. And there's the tower. The Romans built a tower there because they were aware that actually the temple was the site where if there was going to be a terrorist sort of attack, that's where it would happen. Because for the Jewish people of the day, this was in Jerusalem, which was city of God. It was the heart of the heart of where God was. It would be like for us today, if, um, if someone, you know, it's too close to be True, isn't it? Too close. But if someone set an attack up on the banking world in the city of London and Westminster Abbey and the Houses of Parliament, all triggered for the same time, the rest of the country would go, that's an attack on all of us. It's every area of our lives that's now been attacked. And that's actually what this whole area had come to mean for the Jewish people. Now, these, these areas, when they were set up with, um, with tables and with merchants selling, selling animals, the reason they did it was because you wanted to bring your best to God. And so if you were coming sort of like from Galilee, 300 miles up the road, 
If you were bringing your animals to the temple, by the time they got there, they could well have been injured or something might have gone wrong or whatever. And it wouldn't be perfect. So it'd be better for you to bring your money and to buy the animals that are here because then you know they're perfect. And if you were Jewish, you could come in to the court of Israel. If you were a Jewish woman, you could get that far. You were Jewish, you were in, but only that far. The men could go further. And then if you were a priest, you could get even further. You'd be here around the altar area. And then once a year, one priest would go into the holy place, just one priest, and come out again, offering sacrifices to God. If you were Jewish, if you were Gentile, you got this far. If you were a woman, you got this far. If you were a Jew, ordinary Jewish man, you got that far. If you were a priest, you got that far. If you were on duty that year, you got that far into the holy place with God. And when Jesus comes, you've got all of this stuff happening here in this sort of area, in this sort of area, all the the stuff being uh, sold, and Jesus overturns the tables. Now, why does he overturn the tables? That's a big question. He doesn't overturn the tables because he doesn't think people shouldn't be buying things in church. He doesn't overturn the tables because somehow they're ripping people off. He overturns the tables because actually what he's doing is stopping, at least for a 30-minute moment, the sacrificial system. He's actually blocking all of this. Does that make sense? I'm conscious that some of you might have switched off about 10 minutes ago. So do you you see where I'm going? When Jesus does it, he does it as a demonstration. Two things. Jesus is not just, he's not lost his temper. All right? Because we read, he went the night before to look round. So it's not like an irrational outburst. He's gone in, and what he does is a demonstration. It's a symbolic demonstration. If you stop the sellers selling the animals to people who want to bring it for sacrifice because they're concerned about their sin and whether God will bless them, if you get to the root of that and you stop them selling, you block, everything collapses. Everything collapses at that point. The whole system comes to a close. And for at least a period, that's what Jesus is doing in the temple. He's bringing the system to an end. Are you with me so far? All right. There will be time for questions. But are you with me so far? So what about this temple? Why is it so important? In the beginning, God creates the heaven and he creates the earth. And right in the beginning, Genesis tells us that God can speak with humans really easily. There's that wonderful phrase, in the cool of the day, the Lord walks in the garden, and Adam and Eve chat away about how the day's been. And God says, how are you getting on with naming all these animals? And, and he said, I didn't know what to do about that one, but I made it aardvark. I don't know if it's a great name, but that's the word I've gone for God. And God goes, I think that's a great name. Go for it. In the cool of the day, God speaks. But then the story goes, the earth gets messed. We get messed up because of sin. 
It's why things don't work so well. It's why we've got relational problems. It's why uh, work becomes hard. It's all of the stuff that actually gets mixed up. And the story in the early point is that heaven and earth get mixed up. God's realm is still engaged with earth, but earth's really messed up. And do you remember in the early story, what's the first thing that Adam and Eve do in their relationship with God is they hide. I'm ashamed. But God doesn't give up on humanity. And uh, if you remember how the story goes, he says to Abraham, I want you to be the, the head of a new family that's going to be a means of blessing to the whole earth. I want you to be the beginning of a new story. And uh, I'm going to give you a land and you'll walk through a desert to that land. And in the desert, I'll be with you. And you'll know I'm with you because during the day, there'll be a pillar of cloud. And at night, there'll be a pillar of fire. You'll know because there'll never be a moment where you can't see that. And in a sense, what happens is they start to build a tent, a tabernacle in the desert. And it's like, God's with us. The tabernacle's there. We can see the pillar of uh, 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 smoke. We can see the pillar of fire. There's a touching point between heaven and earth, even when the earth's messed up. And then later, David, who's the king, says, what I want to do, God, is I want to build you a temple. Do you remember God says to, uh, to David, yeah, it's not for you to do, but your son will. And the temple becomes the touching point between heaven and earth. How do you know at that time? How do you know that God's on your side? Listen, you can come into the temple and go, we have screwed up again. But I've, I've come here and I, I'm, I'm using my, my money, I'm using my wealth, I'm using what I've got to ask you, God, will you forgive us again? It's the beginning of the Jewish New Year, I think this week. And it's the period where they do that, where you go, we have messed up. God, will you? And so the temple becomes this touching point between heaven and earth where you can come and you can meet God and, and God can meet you. But like with what happens with many religious organizations, it starts to be owned by the powerful. And then Jesus comes. And what, from the very first activity of Jesus' ministry, what happens is, do you remember at the baptism when Jesus is baptized, a dove comes down and a voice says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And it's kind of like the touching point between heaven and earth now is no longer in a brick building, but is in a person, Jesus. Jesus is the touching point between heaven and earth. In fact, to the extent that the things that Jesus does are the things that you should have had to go to the temple for. He heals people. In one case, he heals someone of leprosy and then says, go to the temple and show them because they'll accept you back into community. But I've healed you. You didn't need to go to the temple to get healed. He'll forgive people. And do you remember they would argue, who can forgive? And Jesus says, well, actually, I can. 
I can forgive. And it's like suddenly the stuff that was in the temple, Jesus is doing. Jesus does God things. Who stills the storm? Who walks on water? Who feeds 5,000? Well, it's all the stuff that, well, God does that sort of stuff in the temple. But now Jesus comes and says, I can do it. And just if, in case you're in any doubt, just before this happens in chapter 11, Jesus says, even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He's absolutely just said to everybody, that's why I'm here now, the temple. You don't need to go to the temple, folks. I'm here. I've done it. I've broken the system. In verse 18, that chapter we've just read, it says this, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and they began looking for a way to kill him for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Who's this good news for? The whole crowd. Who's this bad news for? The authorities in the temple. He's blowing the system apart. He's stopping it. And last thing to say about what he's doing here, before we say what does it mean for us, is he quotes two things. And in verse 17, when he's stopping this sacrificial stuff going on, he says, it's written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. Now, when we read that in our Bibles, I think most of us just go, yeah, fair enough. But I think for anybody who knows the Old Testament, and I've, I've used this analogy before, um, but these would have echoed and they would have given the reader and the listener the big picture because they would go, I, I know where that comes from. And, and this is a silly example, but it's, it's, it works, I think. If I were to say, you're just like a dancing queen, young and sweet, only 17. Most of you, not all of you maybe, but most of you would go, I'm singing it now. <laughs> or, do you know what, folks? All we need is love. Love, love, love. That's all we need. And, and you're there, because it's like, it's an echo that's deep within, and it's like, I know that. I know that wider context. I know that wider song. So when you hear Jesus say, and when they heard Jesus say, at that time, this place should have been a house of prayer for all nations. Let me read that bigger song. Let no foreigners who've bound themselves to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. Two things. Who's excluded? Foreigners? You don't belong. And sexually confused? You don't belong. Isaiah says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name 
better than sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. You might not, and you know, excuse me being so direct, but a eunuch has been someone, a male, who's been castrated in order that they might serve in a harem, which is a place where women are being used for sexual purposes by a very important, powerful man. And a eunuch has no family, can't have a family, because actually that's the life that's been picked out for them. Sexually, they don't belong anywhere now. You're not a man and you're not a woman. You're asexual. You've been castrated in order to be used. To you people, Isaiah says, I've got a vision of what the temple can be. And it's a place where those people can be included. To the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant. These I'll bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The two people that actually were excluded are now the people that Isaiah says they're the ones that actually God wants to include in. And Jesus sings the song and goes, you made it into what it was never designed to be. And then he says, because actually what you made it is a den of robbers. And uh, if you want a picture of what I think he means is a den of robbers is, do you remember in, in the film Oliver? Fagin's stash is where they came back with all the stuff that they'd stolen. That's a den of robbers. But of course, it's not Jesus making this up. He's echoing a song that Jeremiah sang, where Jeremiah had said, don't trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you don't oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and don't shed innocent blood in this place, if you don't follow other gods to your own harm, then I'll let you live in this land. But look, you're trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you've not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we're safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? I've been watching. And Jeremiah there said, listen, you can't, you can't go and do your own stuff and then come back and go, it'll be okay, Jesus comes and says to the people there and then, you're trusting that your religious systems will save you. But I'm telling you, you've allowed your religious systems to become something they were never designed to be. So how do we read this then? I have to say, I find this interesting. All right, but it's kind of like, so what? Well, it depends on where you stand in the story, really, doesn't it? I've been reading this week, uh, I've begun reading a book about um, televangelists in America and why it all went wrong. And it's really easy for me to read this and be quite judgmental. 
and to feel like I'm standing with Jesus, going, ha ha, you got it all wrong. And that is such a great feeling to have, I've got to tell you. I don't know how you find being judgmental, but I love it. It's so easy, and I get it, so I'm feeling so right, and I get 20-20 vision, and I can create stories, and then I can rail against them, and I feel like I'm, I'm righteous, and I'm standing with Jesus and pointing the finger and going, me and Jesus think you're rubbish. <laughs> Maybe I'm the only person in the room. Do you know what? I think there is a sense in which Jesus does look at his people and go, do you know, you got it wrong. You got it really wrong. And I think that when we do get it wrong, and I mean when we get it really wrong, we come under the judgment of God. I think when churches act in ways that exclude, and we've got a history of that in our church in the UK and in the West, where we said if you're not one of us, you don't belong to us. I think when we abuse children, and there's too many stories about that, I think God looks at the church and says, I don't care what you call yourself. You're not mine. And I think when church gets judgmental, like I can get, I think I become like a fig tree that's in full leaf but hasn't got any fruit. So my first reading about this is not actually to be desiring to get Jesus on my side to point the finger at other people, but is aware that actually I can be that fig tree. But much more positively, I want to go back to that picture. Because one of the things that Jesus did is he said to those who would follow him, I want to send you out. And you become the touching points between heaven and earth. You go forgive sins. You go heal the sick. You go get involved with the tragic cases. You go show the love of God. You go. And as you go, I will be with you. And we become the touching points between heaven and earth. We do the works of Jesus in the messed up world we are until one day heaven and earth will be fully combined. And I think that's actually one of the ways of reading this. What does it mean to learn and follow the way of Jesus? Well, actually, what does Jesus do here? He's wanting his disciples to see something different. And the rest of the book, from 11 through to 15, 16, is going to be how Jesus is going to be crowned as king. But his disciples will follow him out into the world. Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he reclaims the city and they shout, his followers shout Hosanna, Hosanna son of David he goes and Jerusalem is the capital city, he goes from Jerusalem into the temple the heart of the heart of the city of God and reclaims it and says this is what it was designed to be because he speaks we hear him, and we're left with a question, so what about us? So what's going through your head? What are you thinking?
what strikes you, what confuses you, what, yeah, Nev, what speaks to you. Uh, I'm just a little bit confused about the fig tree because, yes, it's full of leaves, but it does say it wasn't the season for figs. It wasn't figs. the season for figs. It wasn't the so. Kairos moment for figs. Yeah, that's odd, isn't it? That it's almost like it out of season, it's still looking like it should, but it didn't. It's, it's, a, it's the difficult part of the passage. And it's kind of like, well, and we get all sorry for we get all sorry for the fig tree. It's like we're all on the side of the fig tree now, going, Jesus, this is not fair. But actually, what it seems to be is that your leaves and your fruit are supposed to be there together. You're out of season, you're not. You're not in the season for figs, which if you didn't have leaves would be okay. But you do have leaves. You're looking like you're in season, but you're not producing the fruit that you ought to. Don't feel too sorry for the fig tree. <laughs> it's only a tree. It can't produce fruit from leaves. Well, it may well be true, but it's irrelevant. <laughs> okay. Do you know what I mean? And I, I can give you loads of books to read about commentators who've had to, who are no horticulturalists who are trying to do this. But it's, it's a symbol. It's a parable. And in the same way as parables are never meant to be one for one, they're supposed to give you a picture of what's going on here. Um, it's an acted-out parable. It's an acted-out parable. <laughs> we could turn this into a save the fig tree moment, but um, um, we might miss the point. <laughs> but it's, it is interesting, and it's a difficult part of the passage. No? Hello. Uh, what was going through my head was when you talked about the eunuch, that was a, a real um, crossroads moment because I started to think about, um, for example, where I work, more and more young people are defining themselves as non as as asexual or non-binary or in terms of never even knew what they meant. Um, transgender. I mean, I see it, notice it increasing. So then you think, my first reaction is, oh no, that's there's, there's something not right about that, something abnormal, if you like. And then I'm challenged again here about this whole area, because it's a huge, it's a huge uh, stumbling block to non-Christians, I think. Homosexuality, gender, all that stuff. And actually, when you, you go back to the stories of Jesus, what did Jesus do with all sorts of folks, prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, gluttons, drunkards, he invited them for a meal. He mm. said, I'm going to come and stay with you. Mm. Like we're reading a shameless plug for Crystal Lane's book at the moment that they're in the back, but he talks about this quite a lot, and it's a great reminder that actually our job is not to judge, or our job is to welcome and to point them to Jesus. And Jesus does the other work. Mm. It's not our, and it's just a real reminder because I get myself in all sorts of quandaries of, oh, what should I believe and what should I think and what will I say to non Christians about this thing? And I don't know what I believe. And then you just think, Jesus includes everybody. And it's his work to change people's hearts or to, to do the moments of, is this what you need to change in your life? Is this right? Is this the right perspective? Mm. So anyway, that's just... Yeah, and, you know, and it's interesting when you read the book of Acts then, one of the earliest um, people who spreads the gospel 
is the Ethiopian eunuch. So the first missionary to Ethiopia on his way home fits into that category of seen by many as not fitting. I think also when you looked at the, um, the physical temple itself, mm. the aerial view, it was clear that for some people they would have been, it's to do with access. So you've got that holy place there into which only the priest would have gone and he, would, he was chosen by um, like lottery, wasn't he? And you've got the women and you've got the Gentiles. And the whole point for me about Jesus being the temple is the inclusive nature. So in his ministry, he allowed people to touch him who would have been shunned. I'm thinking of the woman with the issue of blood. Um, that, that is still a no-go area in the Jewish faith that you don't shake hands with a rabbi if you're a woman because you might be unclean. And I think he broke the taboo of um, those who were not allowed into the inner part there by allowing untouchables to touch him, physically to touch. It was the touch that was important. Yeah, and the amazing thing is, he d and he's doing the, exactly that. He's doing the stuff that, you know, how to get healed, well, you, it's through here. But he goes out and does it, and, and you know this, but the, it's the amazing thing is that in touching, he doesn't become dirtied, mm. they become clean. Mm. That's, the, that's the brilliance of what he's doing. It's never, he's never afraid, because he's like, you're not going to make me... Mm dirty but I can make you clean mm. and, and the, the sort of the implication of that is huge isn't it because mm. yeah. it's like you know how many folks sort of go even if they want to sort of think well and I've got it said to me and you must have had it said to you I'm not good enough to come as though you know somehow if I came I'd let the side down mm. and Jesus goes you ain't going to make it dirty We'll make you clean. Anybody else? Yeah, Sam. Don't know. Extend some. I'm just thinking about um, how do we become these touching points when I come with my own prejudice? Yeah, that's a really good question, isn't it? What's the answer? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder whether one of the one of the ways. I wonder whether one of the ways is that actually you belong to a body who is intentionally... We try and make ourselves intentionally as open as possible. So I think that... And those of you who've been with us the longest know that I've said this before. That if we ended up as a sort of like a middle-class enclave of white people on the high in Salford, then we can't demonstrate what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. And, and of course you become those people, not because you don't, nobody, nobody sets out to be, I just want to be a white middle class congregation. Nobody actually ever says that. But what we do is, we just freeze people out who don't belong like us. So I think that this is going to be, I'm going to get to your question. Never with me. <laughs> Jesus might come before I finish, but I'll get there. <laughs> so one of the things about being church and being church in a city and being church with other Christians around us is hearing the stories from one another 
from those who come from different social stand, uh, standings, from those who come from different backgrounds, from those that come from different ethnic groupings, from those that come with different languages. Can I hear, can I listen to you? You know, so Mildred's sitting there on the back and we all know look, Mildred and love her and she never stops talking. But Mildred from Zimbabwe and that story of what life was like there. If I don't sit and listen to Mildred and go out of my way to listen to Mildred's story, I am poorer. I am poorer. Because I can't hear what it's like back there. And I can't hear what it's like for her and her family living on the duchy when you're getting eggs against your window because you're black. And the resilience that's needed to live there as a Christian on an estate that has historically been white and therefore people like Mildred and Chris have not been welcomed. Now when Mildred and Chris and Ted and Menasha come to church then and they become part of our church and when we are able to build relationships with people, sorry Mildred, people like Mildred, when we build relationships with people like Mildred, what we do is we say to Duchy and the rest of the height, there is a different way of being here. But the truth is, there's still within us, there's still within me a white middle classness. I've got to own that. But I also know that I'm poorer without the relationships, the deep relationships with other people from different contexts. Because if I'm not able to do it here, where we're saying we're coming around the table and we've got Jesus as the centre, then I'm, I can't do it elsewhere then. Yeah. So how do we walk across the room, as one author talks about? As, how do we walk across the room? Well, to be honest, this is the, this is the challenge, isn't it? This is the challenge that we've all got. To walk across the room number one, to anybody, and to walk across the room to people who are not like you, and then to build a relationship with people who are not like you. And that takes intentionality, and it takes time, and it takes effort. Because left to ourselves, it is quite possible in church just to be the same as though Christ hasn't come and said in Christ there's no male, female, Jew, Greek, male, um, slave or free. It's quite possible just to be a collection of little groups of individuals who all have a lot in common. Mm. And there's something about this intentionality of can I build a relationship with one another in order that you don't become like me and I don't become like you, but together we celebrate the Jesus who brought us together. And I think then we're able to demonstrate that thing of um, the Jesus, the, the touching points. Because I think then we've got something to say. It strikes me there's a verse that, that Jesus says as well, and we've not, I don't think we've come across it in Mark's Gospel, but where he says, when you hold a party or when you invite people for a meal, don't invite people that are like you because in every other context pretty much we invite people that we get on with and we have we have a laugh with and we've got stuff in common with but what we're meant to be is we're meant to invite be intentional about inviting people that are not like us aren't we and that's the difficult that's the intentional because you 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 don't want to you want to invite people that you get on with and you have a laugh with and it's easy with but we're asked jesus asked us to invite people that that it's not easy with because we don't have much in common and we don't 
have the same sense of humour. We don't watch the same programmes. And, and actually just inviting people for a meal or going out for a drink with somebody who's not the sort of people that you'd normally do is, is one way of doing that, isn't it? And I think that there is that thing of, you know, we're a growing church and all the rest of it, but um, sometimes people have said in the past to me, you know, um, struggling in church because there's no one just like me. As though a good church is where we've got mirrors, mirror relationship, just, just like me. And I said, I don't think that's what church is there at all for. I think church is not primarily a friendship agency. I think what church is primarily is this disciple-making community in which we demonstrate what it looks like when you've got the multiplicity of the kingdom of God in a place that's trying to work out. And we, we get it wrong. We will get it wrong. But actually, that's our intention, that we're not all going to find people who are just like us. That's not why you join a church. What you join a church for is, can we actually be part of a body where we're not like one another? But actually, we're learning so much. Now, at times, that will mean it's not as comfortable. It's much more comfortable when you're with people just like you. Unless you're horrible. <laughs> <laughs> it's much better when you're with people just like you. Because you have to learn to talk in a certain way. You have to learn to eat in a certain way. You have to learn to understand in a certain way. But I've got to tell you, ultimately, it's much more interesting. Because just a mirror image of you, you will grow bored. Anyway. Yeah, Not challenge, but it's a challenge for the church. I went to um, Hazel Grove Baptist Church on Friday. There was um, a sign language choir there, and one of my friends is a part of it. Um, one of the ladies stood up, and I spoke to her afterwards, because she was basically saying that one day she went up to the leader of the church and said, what would happen if somebody who was deaf came into our church? She said, what would happen? And there wasn't an answer. So she said, right, I'm going to learn sign language. So she learned sign language. And then she said, I'm going to start doing it in church with the sermons. So every week, she stood at the front of the church doing sign language. And she said she did it for years. And there wasn't a deaf person in the church. And it got to the point where she thought, maybe I've got this wrong. Maybe God's message, I misunderstood it. And she got to the point where she was deciding, she's going to go and see the leader of the church and say, do you know what, I'm going to step down. I'm not going to do this anymore. It's pointless. And she was about to do that in the morning service and somebody tapped her on the shoulder and said, thank you for this morning. It's the first time I've ever been to this church and it's amazing that, as in, they signed to her, sorry. Um, and they said, it's amazing that I've been able to come to a church and there's somebody who, you know, can do this. And apparently, this person had been thinking for a number of years about trying to find a church, didn't think there was anywhere they could go, but, you know, sort of words of mouth had gotten around and they'd found out that, you know, this church did that. And it's kind of the challenge, well, actually, what would happen if somebody from whatever came into our church? Are we ready? Mm. 